to your mind when you hear the phrase, victory through unlikely means? Perhaps it's some historical battle throughout history. <clears throat> Perhaps it's an injured Daniel LaRusso crane kicking Johnny Lawrence to win the 18 and under all Valley Karate Championship trophy and really to win Allie Mills. Perhaps you think of all the Rocky movies or Rudy or Hoosiers. Uh, perhaps it's a sports team. It's the reason that you love March Madness. Or perhaps it's something personal. Sort of a, the odds were against me or us or them and I've seen them defy what seemed to be the most unlikely of odds. In my study this week, I was shocked just to learn at the, about the number of studies that have been done on what they would call the underdog effect. Why we're drawn to the stories of victory through relatable challenges, seemingly insurmountable odds, and a victory by the little guy in the face of adversity. As I've, I've spent a little bit of time looking at each of these and my own conclusions is that there's something about the underdog story, victory through unlikely means, because we love to celebrate, because we crave hope. And I think at the end of the day, we're hardwired for a story like this. As, as what it means to be created in the image of God, we have stamped upon our hearts the law of the Lord. And yet we know that we can't satisfy that law. We know we're in need of something that we can't produce. If there's going to be hope for us, it's going to come from an unlikely source outside of us. I think that's why we're all hardwired to long for victory through unlikely means. Well, the book of Exodus, we've been walking in for the last several weeks and what we have found that the book of Exodus really is this story of the one true and living God who desires to make himself known. And he wants to make himself known to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and to all the world. And now specifically, he wants to make his name known to his people Israel. And he's chosen to make himself known through a series of victories through unlikely means. He raises up an old shepherd to lead his people out of slavery. He's brought about plagues to set his people free. He's parted the Red Sea for some two million passengers. And then he's swallowed up an attacking army in the same waters. He's made water drinkable by tossing a tree into the source. He's rained bread down from heaven every morning. He's provided quail all over the ground. And he provided water from a rock. It's been story after story of God, the one true living God, seeking to showcase his fatherly care for his people, seeking to showcase his divine providence. And when we talk about providence, we've defined this early on in the sermon series. For us to say God has the power and the right to do something, that's his sovereignty. 
God is sovereign to do whatever he wills. His providence is doing everything necessary to bring about his purposes. It's the wise and purposeful use of sovereignty. And so that's what, that's what these stories have been showcasing, his fa- showcasing for us. His fatherly care, his divine providence his good use. Not just he's strong enough to do it, but he's good as he does it. Use of his providence and these victorious purposes for his people. And as we approach our text this morning, Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, that story will continue. The accounts are all different, but the theme is the same. There is no other God like this God. And to be a part of his people is the most prized privilege that you could imagine. And the reason this theme needs to be repeated is because Israel, much much like us, they're slow to learn and they're quick to forget. And so I'd like to pray just that the Lord by his spirit would graciously meet us, a very similar people, slow to learn and quick to forget the good news about who God is. So let's pray. God, as we approach your word, pray that you would allow us to behold and to gaze at wondrous things found in your word. Would you satisfy us this morning as we turn to your word? Would you feed us? Would you nourish us? Would you sustain us? Would you give us a longing for more of you? And Would there be a diminishing of a love for this world. God, it's an unmatched privilege to belong to you, to be one of your own. And so this morning, would you use this sermon to remind us of the good comfort and safety that's found in being one of your children? And would you help those that are not a part of your family, would you give them a longing to run to you for that protection, we pray? And for that to happen, I'm convinced this sermon has to be better. Lord, you, by your spirit, have to do a far greater work with this sermon than I can. And so, would this be the day that the word goes forth, you rend the heavens, and you give us a glimpse of your glory, and we walk away never to be the same again. We pray this. Help our unbelief if we don't believe it can happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn them to Exodus chapter 17. Since the crossing of the Red Sea, what we've traced is God's unique travel plans for his people. He's going to take them to the promised land, and we've noted that he doesn't seek to get there as quickly as he can. He doesn't go the shortest route possible. No, there's another destination in mind I would invite you to come back in the next couple of weeks, particularly in two weeks, as we hear about this other destination that God desires to bring his people to before he leads them to the promised land. The other destination, Mount Sinai, where he's going to make clear who he is to his people. Last week, we saw as God's people set out to Sinai from the banks of the Red Sea, Charlie walked us through these three crises that God's people faced. There was no drinkable water in Mara. There was nothing to eat in the wilderness of sin. And then there was no water, period, in Rephidim. 
And up to this point in their journey, Israel has faced repeated opposition, but, but the enemy would come maybe from a most unlikely of sources. But it's been the most deadly, it's been the most threatening enemy that they've had to face thus far, and it's the enemy within, their own hearts, as they've grumbled so quickly. Their, their hearts have grumbled against the Lord and his chosen servants. And while, while still at Rephidim, they encounter for the first time an enemy from without. And that's what our passage focuses on this morning. And so what we'll do is we'll survey the account. We'll just walk through the account. No sermon points this morning. I'll conclude then with three applications. If you have your Bibles, look. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. This account begins telling us that Amalek attacked the people of God while they were still camped here at Rephidim. Amalek would serve us to just be reminded of who he is. He's the grandson of Esau. If you remember who Esau was, Esau had a brother named Jacob. Jacob dressed up as his brother Esau in order to trick his blinding father and to steal his blessing, to, to steal Esau's blessing in Genesis chapter 27. If we follow the course of God's plan for Jacob, Jacob's name would eventually be changed to Israel. Yes, the name of this people. And so while Jacob and Esau would reconcile in Genesis chapter 33, the, distance, the distant cousins a few generations later are still warring against one another. And what we'll see is throughout their travels to the promised land, the Amalekites will be a consistent presence of opposition to the people of God. And it's interesting, this attack wasn't provoked by Israel. Wasn't that Israel was out looking for a fight. But rather what we learn when we allow Moses, uh, another writing, another section in which Moses recorded this incident, we, we began to learn what kind of people the Amalekites were. Listen to what Moses would later write in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18. He writes to the people of God saying, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. And so what's clear when it says that Amalek came and fought against the people of God, this wasn't a fair fight. This wasn't a a bold, courageous military move. No, this was a cowardly attack. And the way in which he went about this attack was to, to do what? To begin, to begin to cut off those that were straggling in the rear. Those who would have been straggling in this massive caravan would have been the sick, would have been the elderly, would have been the young and the most vulnerable. And so what we begin to see in verse 8, when we allow other passages of Scripture to provide clarity onto this one, is that this was a cowardly attack by a godless people. And so what does Moses do in response? Verse 9 tells us, 
So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Moses commissions Joshua to choose men to go out to fight the Amalekites. While Moses would station himself atop of the hill with the staff of God in his hand. This is our first time being introduced to Joshua, though it will not be the last. Joshua will soon be a prominent figure as the successor of Moses, and the one who God will choose to lead his people into the promised land. He's chosen here. Many scholars believe that this either was the beginning of or it was even uh, evidence of a, a military prowess that he would begin to uh, demonstrate among the people of God. And so while this is the first time for you and I being introduced to Joshua, the original readers would have been very familiar with him. And the task that he has been given is absolutely absurd. I mean, it seems insurmountable. Moses says, Joshua, hey, find an army out of this generation of people who have only been slaves. None of them had a background in weapons. Oh, and by the way, you have one day to get them ready. I love what Phil Riken says. He says, so consider the situation. You are going into armed combat for the first time. You are going into armed combat for the first time with those who have no professional military training. You are going into armed combat for the first time with former slaves with no military training against ex-experienced desert dwellers on their own turf. Your people are completely untested. Their morale has been descending for the last six weeks to two months. And your number one guy says he's going to go on top of a hill with a stick. Do you like your odds? That is the circumstance that the Lord has placed his people in deliberately because God is positioning his people to learn something about him. And consequently, what life looks like in dependence upon him. I mean, this is setting up to be a serious mismatch. The Amalekites certainly were planning that this would be a swift route and a serious haul with all of the spoils that the people of God left Egypt with. And the battle plan is for Joshua to go down to the battlefield while Moses goes to the hilltop. But Moses does not go to the hilltop empty-handed. Did you read, did you notice what is in his hand? He has the staff of God with him. And it's that staff which would prove to be decisive in the outcome of this battle. Thus far in the book of Exodus, that staff has been a symbol of both the power of God, but also the presence of God with his people. This staff was the staff that was thrown onto the ground and swallowed up Pharaoh's magician's staffs that turned into snakes. This is the staff that played the role in the plagues This is the staff that at the Red Sea both divided the waters so that they could walk through and closed them back up so that a chasing army would be swallowed up. It's the same staff that at Rephidim strikes a rock to bring water to drink. You see, we 
we hear this account and we think, perhaps Joshua is thinking, I am entering into a battle that I'm never going to leave, that I'm never going to walk out from alive. But Joshua, he knew the power that was in the staff. That phrase was meant to instill confidence in Joshua. Perhaps that phrase kept Joshua from thinking, this has been, uh, this is the assignment of a mission with no way out. This battle provides a fresh affirmation of God's power. It, pr- it provides a fresh affirmation of God's presence with his people. And think about what the people had been doing just literally in the previous two and three accounts. They've been grumbling against God and against his chosen servant. And this is a fresh affirmation, yet again, for the people of God, that when God calls a man to lead his people, he will equip him. He will lead him. And they do not need to doubt. Verse 10, Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So Joshua has his army. They go out and they fight the Amalekites. Moses then heads up to the top of the hill with Aaron and with Hur. This is the first time that Hur is mentioned. Many believe that he was the husband to Miriam, who was Moses' sister. Later, we'll read about a guy named uh, Bezalel. And Bezalel would be one of the general contractors used to make the tabernacle, which is what the second half of the book of Exodus is all about. And so Moses here, Moses is seen, God God has raised up Moses to be a prophet to the people. And so Moses goes up to the top of the hill and he has with him Aaron and Hur. Aaron was the one through which the, the priesthood, he represents the priesthood of God's people. Moses, the prophet, Aaron, the priest, and her, we know, comes from the kingly line of Judah. You have prophet, priest, king represented at the top of the hill, all gathered overlooking the war. And every detail of this account has been ordained by the good and providential, the strong and sovereign hand of God. You see, God wasn't just sovereign and good whenever he delivered his people out of slavery. No, he is sovereign and good even as he leads them on a path that's marked by danger. I wonder this morning if you believe that. That the same God who delivers is also the good God who brings his people into the paths of danger. The Lord led his people into hunger. Why? So that they might hunger after him. The Lord led his people to a place of thirst. Why? So that they would see that their souls thirst for him. And now he's leading them into a battle in which they are completely outmanned and outnumbered. Why? So that they might trust in him. God led them here not to injure them. He led them here to teach them. To teach them the experience of being in his care and to teach them to trust in his care. 
And so if you're a follower of Christ this morning, while I'm not sure what fiery trial or what unprovoked battle has knocked on your door, I do know that the Lord who has been with you every step of the way will continue to be with you every step of the way. And he will exercise his fatherly care and his divine power at every turn. If you're a Christian this morning, do you believe that? Oh Lord, would you help our unbelief if we don't? Verses 11 through 13 really set the focal point of this account. Verse 11 reads this, So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. What's most interesting about this account, which is about a battlefield, is that the focus of the author is not on the battlefield. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the author, Moses, is seeking to get our eyes off of the battlefield and to gaze to what is happening atop the hill. Scripture is uninterested in giving us details about the battlefield, but it's consumed with what's happening on the hill, particularly with Moses' hands and particularly with what is in his hands. And again, this staff of God, it's not a magic wand. It's a symbol of divine authority. And when it's used obediently, it becomes a reminder, an assurance of the power and the presence of God. When the hands and staff are held up, Israel is successful below on the battlefield. And when Moses' hands and staff were lowered due to weariness, the Amalekites prevailed on the battlefield. And the tension in this story builds when the battle keeps warring on throughout the day. And Moses' hands and arms begin to get weary. And they start to lower. Have you tried holding up your arms? No need to try now. But I would encourage you kids, ask your parents this afternoon to have a little contest. Who can hold their arms up the longest? I also looked up this week who has done that the longest. If you're bored and you want to know, it's people's arms have been held up for a really long time. And I love Moses' recounting of this story. Moses doesn't give excuses. He doesn't try to cover up the real issue. The issue is that Moses got tired. He wasn't strong enough. And I love Moses' recounting of this story Because I'm just reminded of the times where I want to make myself look stronger so others will be impressed with me. And Moses is convinced that the arm of the Lord was much stronger than his own. In time, 
would have been very interesting to just be atop the hill with these three. And at some point, Aaron and her began to pick up on the idea, wait a minute, when his arms are really high and the staff is held up, we win. And when they begin to fall, we lose. So what do they do? Well, they wisely find a stone for Moses to sit on so it's easier for him to not grow weary. And then they both position themselves, one on one arm, one on the other, and they begin to, to support and hold up Moses' arms so that Israel will prevail. Moses isn't on top of the hill giving directions to the troop. And in my study this week, I can't tell you how many times I read that what, what this was a picture of was Moses praying. This is Moses' hands were up. He was praying. And, and many assume that this is all about the prayers of Moses prevailing. And many a good sermon have been preached about prayer on this topic. But prayer is not explicitly mentioned in this passage. And truth be told, I, doubt, I don't doubt that Moses prayed. But that doesn't appear to be the point of this passage. One commentator, Desmond Alexander, said, Although it is often assumed that Moses raises his hand in prayer, prior passages in Exodus assume that the raising of the staff is the mean by which the power of God will flow. And so I don't think that this is primarily a passage about prayer. I think this is primarily a passage about the triumph of God in battle, protecting his people. The focus is on the hill and on the elevated staff, making it clear there is one reason on this day in battle why Israel prevailed. It wasn't because of their military prowess. It was because of the Lord. And without the divine assistance of the Lord himself, Joshua and his makeshift army would have been routed. And this is, the, this is the one lesson that we can't miss this morning. The one and only reason that they could prevail was because the Lord himself was fighting for them and giving them victory. They didn't come away thinking, man, Moses' prayer made all the difference. They didn't come away thinking, man, our one-day training program to get an army ready made all the difference. They didn't come away thinking, we need to pray more. No, they came away thinking... As the staff was held up, the Lord did for us what we could not do for ourselves. They came away knowing that they prevailed that day because the Lord was fighting for them and the Lord was fighting through them. And the account ends in verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn. Perhaps your translation says something else there. My hand against the throne. The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. As Israel is victorious in battle because of the Lord, he tells Moses, write this down. It's the first time in the Bible that we encounter God telling someone to write this down. 
And it's to be written down, not merely so that there's record of it somewhere. It's to be written down so that it can be recited and remembered. It's another picture. Exodus is just overwhelming us with pictures of one generation passing on stories of God's faithfulness to the next. Again, it's a worthwhile question for us to even consider. No matter how old you are, no matter what generation you belong to, are you involved in ensuring that the good news of what God has done is getting to those that are younger than you? It's a responsibility that we have as the people of God. Old Moses, write this down and pass it on to young Joshua. The commending of the mighty works of God from one generation to the next. And as this was written down for future generations, the Amalekites would be blotted out. The last we hear of them is in the book of Esther. But it's not just write it down so we don't forget. There's also this this act in verse 15. Moses built an altar. He built an altar. The altar was there to remember. It was a monument. It was a memorial that was meant to evoke memories of this day in which the Lord had done for us what we could not do on our own. The name of this memorial, the name of this monument was the Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi. Banner was this military term whereby an army would have these standards or a banner. And any time it was pulled out in war, it would be a rallying cry. It would be a place in which the army could run to, to retreat. Or if the, if, if the banner was raised, it was, it was intended to signify victory, continue to keep on attacking. And what God is telling Moses and what Moses understands on this day because of the name of this banner is that the rallying cry, the rallying point, the reason for victory was because of God himself. The Lord is the one who brings about victory. God is telling Moses that the rallying cry for the people of God is me. The victory came through God. We see all throughout Genesis, the patriarchs of the faith, building altars, not, not for sacrifice, but for memorials to remember what God had done. First time in the book of Exodus that we find an altar being built. And that's our passage. This stupefying, I'm trying to think of even another adjective I can't. Stupefying is the best. Deliverance and victory on behalf of the people of God. They should have been routed on this day. I mean, they clearly didn't stand a chance. And yet the Lord has done what they could not do. What relevance does this battle possibly have for us? in 2023. I'm glad you asked. Three observations and applications for us. Number one, Christians are called to engage in battle. Christians are called to engage in battle. 
Up until this point, Israel had been called to only be observers. The Lord is going to do all of the fighting for you. You just sit and wait. The Lord fought for them and he delivered them from slavery. The Lord fought for them and he delivered them across the Red Sea. But now that they have been set free and now that they are en route to the promised land, they must fight. And their fighting must be marked with a severe dependence upon God. No, no, from this point forward, after the Lord has set them free, from that point forward, they must fight. They're not to merely watch. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this ought to sound similar to the spiritual reality in your life. I'm helped by what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, Moses never said to the children of Israel while they were in Egypt, go and fight with Pharaoh. Not at all. It's God's work to bring us out of Egypt and to make us his people. But when we are delivered from bondage, although it is God's work to help us, we must now be active in the cause. Now that we're alive from the dead, we must wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness if we are to overcome. And so Christian, if you now are set free because of Christ, you now are empowered by his spirit and with grace, you now are to fight. The Christian life is not opposed to effort. The Christian life is opposed to earning. The justifying work, the earning work has been accomplished by Jesus it was God's gracious work to save and to adopt and to make you his own. But you have been forgiven in order to wage this battle. You have been forgiven so that you would fight. Christ has won the war. And now Christians are called to be faithful in waging that war. There's a battle that we are to engage in every day. It's a spiritual battle. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. No one's going to call you to, to go and to seek to rout an army. No, Paul writes about this to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He's writing to Christians and he's telling them, you have to be strong. There's an active role that you play. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I wonder if we believe that. That as a Christian, we are called daily to be prepared for this battle, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against forces of darkness seeking to undo us. Paul's going to talk about this battle is being waged against the world and against our flesh and against the devil himself. 
And so there, uh, there are a host of applications as to what this battle would look like. Perhaps it's a coworker who doesn't like what you stand for. Your coworker is not your enemy. Perhaps it's the unbelief in your heart that you're to battle. Perhaps it's the besetting sins. Perhaps it's the longing for revenge. Perhaps it's the giving way to lust, the refusal to forgive others, having a grumbling heart. Perhaps it's, it's the struggle with pride. Whatever your battle consists of, your battles are not primarily against flesh and blood. You don't fight by drafting an army and physically fighting others. No, Paul's going to say in Ephesians 6 that you fight with, with different weapons. You fight with the weapon of faith. You fight with the weapon of trusting in the promises of God. You fight with the weapons of prayer and of the gospel and of the word of God. Jesus would tell Peter, Matthew 26, 52, put the sword away. Jesus' kingdom is not ushered in through that kind of battle. And so if you're a Christian this morning, I just want I want to tell you that not fighting is not an option. You will be assailed. You will not make it to the end. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, writes about this spiritual battle. He says, He that would understand the nature of true holiness must know that a Christian is a man of war. If we are to be holy, then we are to fight. A true Christian is one who not only has peace of conscience, but who also has war within. A true Christian may be known not just by the peace that he has, but by the war he engages in. If you're looking for something to read, I would commend J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, particularly the chapter entitled, The Fight. We are to fight empowered by grace against the world, the flesh, the devil, this array, these that are arrayed in opposition to the Christian. And this is a long war. I mean, the battle here on the battlefield, it raged all day. If you thought Moses would just take the hill, raise his hands, and then boom, it was over, that's not what happened. And before moving on, let's just remember that in this battle, weakness is the way to victory. Weakness is the way to victory. Mighty Moses couldn't do it alone. This has been all about God working through weak human hands. And Moses does not pretend at any point to have the strength needed. You see, you and I can, can suppose that a mark of a, a, a mature Christian, a really godly Christian, is one who is strong all the time. But in reality, the opposite is true. Because it's in our weakness that Christ is strong. This is what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. I love what J.I. Packer said. He said, felt weakness deepens our dependence on Christ each day. Felt weakness deepens our dependence on Christ each day. He says, the weaker that we feel, the harder than we lean. And the harder we lean, the stronger we grow. I, I've just been praying this week. Lord, would you let Covenant Life Church 
not seek to be impressive because of our strength, but that we would be a church that's known for leaning really, really hard on the one who is really, really strong. Friends, you are free this morning from feeling like you have to hide behind the mask of strength. Don't hide that from one another. As your pastor, I'm thankful that you don't require this of me. I am so weak. And yet I want to lean on Christ for strength. Second observation. We need one another in this battle. We need one another in this battle. Moses didn't fight alone. He needed Joshua to re recruit an army. He needed the support of Aaron and Hur. Moses' hands grew weary, just revealing the human limitations and weaknesses in Moses. You see, what we forget is all along the way, the people of God needed Moses. And yet, in this moment, we're reminded that Moses needed them. And their support made all the difference. It made all the difference in this battle. We need each other to fight the world and our flesh and the devil. And so let's just say what the Bible says. The assistance and the help and the care and the service and the love and the support of other Christians in the context of a local church family cannot be taken for granted. It's absolutely vital. It is not an option for the Christian. And I'm convinced that, that given those here this morning, perhaps some of you are thinking or you're feeling like, I just don't know how much longer I can keep my arms up in the situation that I'm in. You didn't realize it was going to be this tough. It's perplexing. It seems to just keep persisting. And just even being here today, you've been reminded of how weary your arms are from seeking to hold everything together. I just want to remind you that the church is the God-given, designed place where we show up and we humbly acknowledge that we can't keep our arms up. You can't be strong enough to the place where we would begin to acknowledge that and others who, in hearing that would, would grab a stone and would bring it by and allow you to rest and would encourage you by lifting your arms up. If you're tired and weary this morning in soul, there's no better place that you could be. Everything that we have been doing today is seeking to bring encouragement from the beginning to the end of what we do when we gather. It's to worship the Lord and to care for one another. The call to worship, you hearing from God, this reminder, be encouraged. Lift up your hands. Singing and hearing others sing, helping others lift up their hands. Scriptures read, prayers prayed. This is why we gather. It's why we have members meetings. It's why we do corporate prayer. It's why we have CLI. It's why we have community groups. It's why we have men's ministry and women's ministry. Because sometimes we need others. And sometimes others need us. 
just encourage you to do a study this summer on all of the times in the New Testament where you read one another. And you'll be convinced biblically that you can't walk this Christian life apart from God's good design of a local church. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 makes clear even what we see acted out in Exodus chapter 17. We are to bear one another's burdens. Ed Welch in his book, Side by Side, says, we all need help and we're all helpers. And most of us have a tendency to mask one of those needs and realities and we're quick to kind of make up for the masking by running to the others. Most of us need help, but we don't want to ask for it. And so we're quick to try to identify it in others and move in to help. We spend a lot of time hiding our needs. If you're a Christian, don't hide your neediness. Give others the opportunity to come alongside you and to help you. People will not think you're weak. In fact, people will think you're humble and godly when you're honest about your needs. And people love the opportunity to meet tangible needs and neediness. And friends, don't expect others to perceive it. And so not only do I encourage us to be honest about our neediness, but I would encourage us, I pray that as a church family, our eyes are open to the neediness of others. That we don't wait to be tapped in order to take a step forward in care of one another. And so this week, I would encourage you, be proactive. Ask others what needs they have. Look for ways to step in and to be an encouragement. I'm not, I'm not merely talking about practical needs. Hey, I need help raking the yard. Praise God, rake someone's yard this week, maybe. I think what I'm talking about is in these battles against the world and the flesh and the devil, let's not allow our family to suffer, to drown, to be exposed because they're not putting on the whole armor of God? No, let's care for one another by ensuring that we're well protected. You need others, and others need you for this battle. Lastly, third application, let's look to Jesus, the one who's greater than Moses. Look to Jesus the one who's greater than Moses. Just as God was the banner for God's people on that day, you know God's people today have a banner? The church has a banner today. Isaiah 52 verse 13, we began to read about and hear about this banner. The prophet of the Lord says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. 
This one who will be high and lifted up, this one who will be a banner for God's people, points us to the ultimate fulfillment of the one who is high and lifted up and greatly exalted. You say, well, wait a minute, who is greatly exalted? Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 2, for this reason also God highly exalted him. Who's him? Jesus Christ. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Church, if you belong to Christ, you have a banner. There's a reason that you know victory, and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with this one. The cross of Jesus Christ becomes the rallying point for his people today. The power for the church comes through the power of the cross and the empty tomb. And so what we need most as a church is not visionary strategies. It's not production value. No, God is going to do what he's going to do on his timetable through a faithful people. And so what do we do in order to remain faithful? What do we do so as to not forget? We keep coming back to the foot of the cross. And as Jesus is raised up, he will draw, he will strengthen, he will forgive, he will provide, he will fight for, he will protect. There's so many banners that are being raised up today among the people of God saying, let's unite around this. Covenant Life Church, we have one rallying point. And it's our Savior. The Lord is our banner. The Amalekites were defeated by Moses lifting up his arms. I said your verse 16 may have something different or interesting. The Lord has sworn, or another translation, the Lord, uh, the hand upon the throne. One commentator, Douglas Stewart says, I prefer the hand upon the throne of God translation. Moses seems to be lifting up his hands to the very throne room of God. Moses, through a piece of wood, has access to the throne room of God. And if you were a follower of Jesus in the midst of your battle through a different piece of wood, you have a pierced, that has a pierced Savior on it, you have access to the very throne room of God. You can experience divine power and fatherly care. The Lord is your banner. And so we rally around the cross. We rally around the empty tomb. The Exodus story, it's the same for us today. God still desires for his name to be known among all the earth. Exodus 9, 16, this is why the plagues are happening, so that his name would be known. And now he's beginning to make himself known, not just through leading people through the Red Sea into the wilderness, but he's letting them know his name by getting to know his character. Exodus 15, 3, he's a warrior for his people. Exodus 15, 26, the Lord is the healer. Exodus 17, 16, the Lord is my banner. Israel isn't merely getting to know what God's name is. He's getting to know his character, what he's like. And notice where all of this learning takes place. It's not in Elam where there were pools and it was an oasis of refreshment. No, all of this is taking place in the wilderness. When Egypt is bearing down, they have nothing to eat and drink. The Amalekites attack them. And the same is true for his people today. It's often in moments of trials and struggles that God makes himself known to us too so that we will be able to say, the Lord is my banner.
I wonder this morning if you can say the Lord is your banner. Scripture says if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's only one way to rally around and to stand under this banner, and that's to come to the end of yourself, turn from your sin, and trust in the work of Jesus alone. You may have walked into this gathering this morning unprotected by the care of God, but you can walk out with the protection of God that comes over your life as you come to give up your sin, to lay it all down, and to trust in the work of Christ alone. Today, do not harden your heart, but trust in Jesus. Because of Christ, you can say, He is my banner on the cross. It was the man upon the hill, the prophet, the priest, and the king who mediated the victory of our salvation. Christ was lifted up so that God would draw us near to him through his perfect life, through his death as a substitute for sinners, and through his bodily resurrection. He has defeated our ancient enemies far more, far more pervasive, far more uh, uh, far more powerful than Amalekites on the battlefield. He has defeated our ancient enemies of sin, of death, and of Satan. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. If you are not a Christian, I would just call you to side with the one who must win the battle. And if you are a Christian and your hands are growing weary because of the waging of this war and this victory that you've been given because of Christ, lean into his provision of his people. Don't go at this alone. That memorial, that monument for us is the cross and that monument has been memorialized in and through the Lord's Supper a family meal of God's people. God's people who have been baptized, who are members in good standing of a church that preaches the true gospel message that you're only made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By those who have been baptized, members of a church that preaches that gospel, having the affirmation of that church, another church, or this church, you're walking in repentance of sin, walking in reconciliation with one another. If that's you, this meal is meant to be a memorial for your own heart. To remember what God has done for you that you couldn't do for yourself. It's meant to, to be a, this, this opportunity for a chorus of worship to erupt from your soul. Because he has done this to make you one of his. 
If you're not a Christian today, we would say that as the elements are passed, don't partake, but rather consider the opportunity to be loved and protected by this God. Be willing to turn from your sin and trust in Him alone. And so I'm going to pray. The elements will be passed about. We will wait till everyone has them and we will take them together, even just being a good visible reminder of our need for one another. And so let's pray. Our holy God, we come to your word and we ask that your word would pierce our hearts and give us understanding and give us enlightenment and make us wise. God, we thank you for the sacrifice that Christ provided. And God, I ask that you would, even today, allow this observance of the Lord's Supper to, to grow and to, to sustain and to nourish our faith. And Lord, we long for the day where we don't feast on this little meal, but we feast at the banquet table with the lamb who was slain. And so in this time of waiting for elements to be passed and holding the elements, would you just allow our hearts to look within, confess sin, and readily turn to you for grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.